0: This is The East DramaCast Drama Cast.
1: with your moderators, Berox Madback, University
0: of Florida, Jacksonville. Dave Morris from Intermountain Medical Center in Salt Lake City,
1: Utah. Carrie Valdez from Covenant Hospital in Saginaw, Michigan. And Matt Martin from Madigan Army Medical Center. This program brought to you by
2: the Online Education Committee
1: of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma. Advancing science, fostering relationships, and building careers. All right, welcome back to another edition of the East Trauma Cast brought to you by the Online Education Committee. I'm happy to have a guest with us here today, Dr. Deb Stein, who is the Chief of Trauma at Shock Trauma Center in Baltimore, as well as my co-moderator, Dave. Uh, Deb, if you would uh, go ahead and introduce yourself. Uh,
2: yeah, as Gary said, my name is Deb Stein. I'm the Chief of Trauma and Director of Neurotrauma for the Adams Cali Shock Trauma Center here in Baltimore at the University of Maryland.
1: And Dave, uh, you want to say hello and introduce yourself?
0: Hi, Dave Morris. I think everybody is painfully aware of me.
1: (laughs) (laughs) The voices that they hear. Good. We wanted to have a a conversation today just about updates and concurrent management with the traumatic brain-injured patients, and Deb was one of my uh, attendings and fellowship, and I used to enjoy just our bedside talks about these various uh, topics when we were on rounds. So I asked her if she would join me, and we kind of had that same discussion um, and, and really dive into what there is data for, what there is not data for, what we do because we think it works but just can't prove it, and uh, so on. Uh, so thank you very much, Deb, for joining us. Getting started, um, let's just start with very basics. There's, there are many types of brain injuries. There's subdural, subarachnoids, intrapankyl, interventricular. When the patient comes into the trauma bay and you don't know what kind they have yet, is there any difference in how you should be managing them? Or once you've got your CAT scan back and you actually see and can define what kind of brain injury they have, are there differences at that point that you're starting to think about for how you're going to manage them?
2: Yeah, so great question, and it's one of my actual pet peeves, is that everybody talks about traumatic brain injury like it's one disease, and that's like saying cancer to me. Um, So obviously an acute epidural hematoma in a young, previously healthy patient. Um, that with surgical evacuation that patient goes home the next day It's a completely different injury and completely different disease than the patient who for example has a diffuse axonal injury or um, diffuse subarachnoid with intraparenchymal contusion. So I think the concept of looking at traumatic brain injury, not as all as one disease, um, but the symptoms of those things tend to be very similar. Um, the way those patients present tend to be very similar, but the, the way they're treated and the way they're managed is very, very different. So. I think when the patient first rolls into the trauma bay, there are a few things that you always want to look for that make you highly suspicious that the patient has a unilateral mass lesion that requires surgical evacuation. So these are the patients that you need to get your neurosurgeon to the bedside immediately. Unilateral pupillary abnormality, rapid decline in GCS, or lateralizing signs on your exam are highly suspicious for unilateral mass lesion that will require evacuation. Other than that, things obviously depress level of consciousness that make you concerned that a patient has a brain injury. The management of those patients then really focuses on reduction of intracranial pressure. Um, Not to say the patient has a unilateral mass lesion that requires evacuation doesn't also need management of their intracranial pressure, but those two entities are somewhat different. Once you then have your CAT scan, you can identify what the unilateral mass lesion may be that requires evacuation. And there are some basic principles that the Brain Trauma Foundation promotes. That, that guideline is now very old. I don't know that it's actually – I don't even know if they're doing another version of it, but I wish they would. Basically, a subdural hematoma greater than one centimeter with more than uh, five millimeters of shift, an epidural hematoma greater than 30 centimeters cubed, all with caveats with respect to the patient's exam, pupillary exam, and GCS. So when you see that a patient has unilateral lesion, that's a patient that requires a surgical, a neurosurgical intervention potentially. Those patients who just have more diffuse injury, there are a couple of features that I think are very, very important to know whether the patient is at imminent risk of death from that injury. And those are your patients who have more diffuse type injuries. Your diffuse subarachnoid, your diffuse axonal injury, severe cerebral edema. And a couple of things that you want to look for are things like do they have compression of their basal cisterns? Do they have loss of gray-white differentiation? Do they have compression of their fourth ventricle? Do they have real loss of of the features of the brain, the sulci and gyri of the brain? Those are patients who are at risk of elevated intracranial pressure and, if left untreated, have the potential to progress to brain death, if not immediately treated. That being said, This is all very age-dependent as well. So your younger and healthier your patient is, the more plump and normal their brain is, the higher their risk is of deterioration. The older, more atrophied your patient's brain may be, the less risk, even with significant blood in their head or cerebral edema, they are of imminent progression to death from their injury. Does that make
1: sense? Sure, it does, they have more space. They can swell more before it starts to have a clinical impact on perfusion. Um, so, patient comes back into the trauma bay. They've got some uh, brain injury, um, and anything other than the you know lateral, the lateralizing injury, that are going straight to the OR. But they're not going straight to the OR, and they decline. And you have a concern at the bedside that you have a rise in intracranial pressure. You know, elevating the head of the bed um, in the the kind of typical manners we go through. When do you look at a patient and say this patient needs something either mannitol or hypertonic saline? And when you're at that point, which of those drugs do you choose?
2: So I think that there are a couple of baseline background principles that are important to talk about in addition. One is obviously the two worst things you can do for somebody with a brain injury is allow them to be hypoxic or be hypotensive. So those always take priority irrespective of what their brain injury is. I think the patient that comes back that you have concern that they are at risk of elevated intracranial pressure, their CT looks concerning, their exam is concerning with respect to either a rapid decline or a very low GCS or pupillary abnormality, those are the patients which who should have emergent treatment for elevated intracranial pressure. And I kind of divide this up into two tiers in my own brain. One is the patient that, yeah, I'm kind of worried that they could have elevated intracranial pressure. That's a patient that I typically, in my practice, will use hypertonic saline for. The reason I like hypertonic saline, it's obviously a volume expander. It's not a diuretic like mannitol is. So if the patient is a polytraumatized patient or even if they just have an isolated brain injury but are at risk of hypovolemia, we like the extra volume that hypertonic saline gives us. It's also very well tolerated. A single dose, two doses is not going to be a problem for anybody. Those patients who are manifesting signs and symptoms of Absolutely, they have elevated intracranial pressure. Absolutely, they are at imminent risk of significant deterioration. They are hypertensive and bradycardic. They have they have pupillary, dilata- you know, pupillary abnormality that is occurring in front of you, rapid decline in GCS. Those are patients who, what I say is give them the kitchen sink approach. Those are patients who should have hypertonic saline, mannitol, Potentially hyperventilation, elevate their head of bed, and get your neurosurgeon to the bedside because that's a patient that requires some sort of emergent intervention, whether that be surgical evacuation or whether that be placement of an extraventricular drain to relieve, you know, to at least draw some CSF and decrease their intracranial pressure. But those are patients kind of the kitchen sink approach. Whereas just throw everything at them to lower their intracranial pressure, we will deal with the consequences of those treatments on the back end. You do want to be careful with mannitol. In um, somebody who either has, who is anuric, um, because again, if you don't, if they can't pee it out, um, it, it can cause some problems with respect to their volume status. Subsequently, um, you also want to be a little bit careful with mannitol because um, it does have a rebound effect associated with it. But it is a highly effective measure at lowering their intracranial pressure acutely. Remember, the dose is higher than everybody thinks it is. It's 0.25 to 0.5 grams per kilo, so it's a lot of vol. It's a it's a big dose of mannitol. It's not. For most people, it's, it's, a, it's a hefty dose, and please help your nurses draw it up because it comes from little teeny tiny vials, and if anybody's ever tried to draw it up, it's kind of a pain in the butt to do. So help your nurses, and they'll like you better for it, um, but those, that tends to be my approach. Hypertonic saline um, comes in a bunch of different formulations, as everybody knows. I personally, we keep the 3% in our omni-cells, so it's right there, and to be a little careful, if you want to use the 23.4 or the higher concentrations, it's fine. Um, you have to be careful about putting that through a peripheral line, though. So um, if you have, the, if you want to use the 23.4, which is which works great, you really do need central access to do that. Three percent, you can push, you can go through a peripheral line without a problem. Seven and a half percent, same thing. Um, but as you get higher with the tenacity, you want to be a little bit careful. And uh, you bring up a good point that
1: you keep it in your omni-cell. Dave. Uh, what do you all do at your practice? Do you keep nanotol or uh, hypertonic saline available in the trauma bay?
0: Yeah, we have both available. Um, we, uh, as Deb was saying, we, we won't give the 23% unless we have a central line. But, um, yeah, we keep a, we keep a 3% uh, ready to go and we keep mannitol and the ready to go too. And Deb, I was hoping to get your thoughts, um, you know, with this, uh, excitement and, and interest in the balanced crystal some of the, uh, you know, some of the stuff coming out of Vanderbilt. What are your thoughts about how this affects Traumatic brain injury, where it's you know very much a high chloride content fluid. Do you think it? Do you think that matters in this case, or is it just the, the osmotic benefit is worth whatever damage may occur to the kidneys? Or what are your thoughts about that?
2: Yeah, it's a great question. And the short answer is, I don't know. Um, we've been using normal saline and hypertonic saline for years and years. I have to say, I don't think we're killing people with the chloride, but I don't know that for sure. Um, you know, I think that as a general rule, if a patient doesn't require a, um, a high-chloride solution, you want to try to avoid it. I think the data is is relatively compelling that if they don't need it. But I think that the sodium benefit probably, at least in 2018, outweighs the chloride deficit. Um, I do think you want to be careful when you use hypertonic saline or any high-chloride-containing solution that you are going to potentially have issues with a hypochloremic metabolic acidosis. Um, and so that typically is what limits my use of it in my practice. Um, and so I think that, that there, very well may be a downside. I do think the upside of giving the sodium, it probably outweighs that. There are other formulations. We typically, we actually, our 7.5% is actually a 50% sodium chloride, 50% sodium acetate solution. So you, there are other formulations of hypertonic solutions that don't have to be all chloride. Um, And so we typically will reserve that because it it has a short uh, shelf life, so it has to be made kind of um, by your pharmacy. And so we don't keep it kind of at at the bedside in our omni-cell. But in those patients who you are using repeated doses of high chloride-containing solutions, you may want to consider switching to something that has a balanced uh, solution with the salt that may be acetate-based or or bicarb-based.
1: And you mentioned uh, patients who are uh, critically ill and declining in front of you might need intubation. Can you touch on uh, the role of intubation uh, for airway protection as well as uh, how do you manage their um, CO2 and do you think that you should uh, hyperventilate these patients and for how long and and what are our target goals?
2: Yeah, so, you know, there's a lot of interest in what's the right drug to intubate these patients with, right? Ketamine was absolutely controversial. Quote unquote contraindicated for years and years and years. We now know that ketamine is perfectly fine to intubate these patients. It obviously, it it may very well be associated with a slight increase in intracranial pressure, but that is far offset by a lack of reduction in cerebral perfusion pressure. So our field medics in Maryland use ketamine almost exclusively now. Um, however, you, you know, this is, this is kind of the, there is no high-quality data that says one RSI regimen is better than another. Obviously, you want to secure the airway with minimizing the patient's risk of hypoxia. So in a patient where I'm really worried about them, this is not the patient where I feel very comfortable letting the most junior person in the room attempt the intubation for two reasons. One is obviously a CO2 elevation while they're trying to get the air, airway, and obviously hypoxia being incredibly detrimental to patients with brain injury. Once they're intubated, maintaining normal oxia and normal carbia. I think most of the literature now and as well as expert opinion will tell you that most of what we do for patients with traumatic brain injury is keep them as normal as possible. Keep the temperature normal, keep their CO2 normal, keep their oxygen levels normal. You want to try to avoid the extremes. We actually have some data from our institution that says that hyperoxia may be almost as bad as hypoxia, so really maintaining a normal PO2 in these patients is important hyperventilation is a little bit different. I think that we all know that hypercarbia is bad. It will be associated with elevated cerebral blood flow and therefore an elevated intracranial pressure. Hypocarbia is also bad because we know it's associated with a reflexive cerebral vasoconstriction, which can be associated with cerebral ischemia. So again, Normal to low normal is typically what most of us titrate. I don't know what the right number is. We typically here use 35 to 38 is kind of our empiric background, maintain a low normal CO2. Um, but that being said, in patients who are acutely herniating, that patient population I was talking about previously, they're hypertensive, bradycardic, they're blowing their pupils, go ahead and hyperventilate them. It will absolutely lower their intracranial pressure. It is highly helpful in in doing that but you have to make sure that you recognize that you are likely inducing cerebral ischemia and that you'll have to to figure out what to do with that subsequently. But acutely, if a patient is herniating in front of you and is going to die from their brain injury, hyperventilating them is an entirely appropriate thing to do.
1: All right, you've mentioned a couple of times how detrimental hypoxia is. Can you just remind the audience and touch on why it's so detrimental in the traumatically brain-injured patient?
2: Well, hypoxia is – is detrimental to any patient with neurologic injury. Uh, We know it's one of the things that uh, can induce additional cellular damage. And so, um, well recognized, this is old, old data now, but patients who have a single episode of hypoxia, either pre-hospital or in-hospital, have a not only an increased risk of death, but also have an increased risk of poor neurologic outcome. Um, It just induces a wide variety of biochemical different uh, processes in the brain um, that are associated with, with cellular necrosis and worsening of inflammation and edema. And
1: same concept with uh, hypotension?
2: Yeah, I mean, hypotension is a little bit different. I mean, it winds up being kind of the same pathways ultimately get activated, but, hypo, but hypotension being, you know, we talk a lot about intracranial pressure, but what we really should be talking about, in my opinion, is really cerebral perfusion pressure. Maintenance of cerebral perfusion pressure is it's really what we – what we want to target. And that's hard to do when somebody has very elevated intracranial pressure. Obviously, cerebral perfusion pressure is determined by mean arterial pressure minus intracranial pressure. But maintenance cerebral perfusion pressure is really what will help to maintain that penumbra, that area around the primary injury um, that is really the target of all of our TBI management strategies. It's all about minimizing that that area at risk. right? The area that is the primary injury occurs to what's done is done in 2018, right? We can't regenerate neurons. But it's that tissue around that area that is at risk of either progressing to irreversible injury or maintaining cerebral blood flow, maintaining good oxygen levels, maintaining good cerebral metabolic function. Those are the areas that we're trying to protect. And maintenance of cerebral perfusion pressure will help to protect those areas.
1: We've already talked about the, not all brain injury is the same. Yep. Do they all need seizure prophylaxis? And if so, do you give it a the trauma oh. day? Do you, does it matter when you give it to them? How long do you give it to them? <laughs> this wasn't going to be that an that easy a, question. That was, yeah, that was an it's a,
2: yeah, it's a really controversial question. It's So we have good high-level data. It's old data, but it's good high-level data that – if you give patients dilantin or valproic acid, those are the drugs that were studied at the time, that you decrease their chances of having a post, an early post-traumatic seizure, which is associated with better outcome. Meaning no seizures associated with better outcome, not seizing associated with better outcome. So those patients Remember. that you can prevent early post-traumatic seizures is a good thing. The drugs of choice, again, are dilantin. The secondary drug is valproic acid. That is based on old studies before we had Kepra. So I'll come back to the Keppra thing in a minute. So based on that, the Brain Trauma Foundation continues to recommend um, prevention of post-traumatic seizures, early post-traumatic seizures, with seven days of an anti-epileptic drug. That's still, the recommended drug is still dilantin, or, 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 or phenytoin, I should say, or phosphenytolin. I shouldn't use the, uh, the brand name. Those patients who should have post-traumatic seizure prophylaxis, per the Brain Trauma Foundation, are patients who have basically anybody who has blood in their head, with the exception of isolated subarachnoid hemorrhage, those patients who have a depressed skull fracture, those patients who have penetrating brain injury, or those patients who have a GCS of 10 or less. Now, that being said, there is a significant risk to patients of using, of using the antiepileptic drugs, all of them. And they are associated with poor cognitive outcome. Um, in the future, particularly in children uh, or young adults who, are, who still have developing brains. So there is definitely a risk-benefit ratio to use of these agents. Patients who have severe traumatic brain injury, they're in your ICU, they're intubated, they have an ICP monitor in, they had a craniotomy, they had a craniectomy. I don't think anybody's going to argue with seven days of post-traumatic seizure prophylaxis in that patient. The patient that comes in who is neurologically okay they have a GCS 1314, They, you know, they're a little confused still. Who has a trace, you know, a small contusion or a small subdural hematoma, or you know, that you're watching with a couple of serial scans and some, you know, neuro checks. Whether those patients really benefit from post-traumatic seizure prophylaxis is a highly debated issue. And to be honest with you, we really don't know what to do with those patients who have basically relatively minimal brain injuries but they have blood in their head and they technically meet the criteria. Those are the patients that I think um, we really need to be studying because there are, as I said, known cognitive, um, uh, worsening of cognitive outcomes in patients who receive anti-epileptic drugs. For the vast majority of patients, seven days of Benitoin, who cares? But for a kid, for a young developing teenager, you know, with a young developing brain, uh, there may potentially be a, a, a real downside. With respect to what agent, as I said, the Brain Trauma Foundation still recommends phenytoin. Um, that is based on old studies. Uh, there has not been a high-quality uh, randomized prospective trial of the use of Kepra. I'm not going to try to say the generic name of that, so I apologize. Um, it, it, it almost certainly works perfectly fine. There is certainly some data that says it demonstrates clinical equipose. It is still, in most institutions, more expensive than phenytoin. Um, and as I stated, there is level 1A data to support the use of phenotone in this situation. So we here still use phenytoin as our agent of choice. Again, only seven days. There is no benefit to extending that out in a patient who has not had a seizure to help prevent late post-traumatic seizures. It has not been demonstrated to be beneficial.
1: Well, since we're on the topic of controversial management, let's talk about DBT prophylaxis. What is the recommended timing? of DVT prophylaxis, doesn't matter what kind of brain injury that they had. And then, of course, we get into how do you convince your neurosurgeon of your opinion that there's a difference.
2: So I think that there is a fair bit of data that just because you have a little bit of blood in your head doesn't, that is not a contraindication to chemical DVT prophylaxis. And I think we should be clear that we're talking about chemical DVT prophylaxis, not mechanical DVT prophylaxis. Sure. We all get very focused sure. on chemical DVT prophylaxis. Let's not forget that mechanical DVT prophylaxis is really effective. Um, And so, you know, I just want to make sure that we're we're clear that we're talking about giving them a low molecular weight heparin as a general rule, which is what most people use. Um, Our protocol here is 72 hours. If they have blood in their head, they get they get lovinox, they get anoxaparin after 72 hours. That's our own internal protocol. There are a number of studies, well-done studies, that have demonstrated that it is probably perfectly safe in the patient after 24 hours. And in my opinion, in the vast majority of patients, it's probably perfectly safe to use right away. I think those patients that have significant intracranial blood that is not amenable to evacuation, uh, diffuse contusions, brain stem lesions, posterior fossa lesions, those are patients where I think the risk of any potential incremental increase in their bleed probably outweighs the benefits they may get from early post, from, uh, from early, uh, chemical <clears throat> prophylaxis to prevent VTE. That being said, Again, there isn't a randomized trial that says 24 hours is better with a, you know, using a composite endpoint of intracranial hemorrhage and fatal PE that tells us what is the right thing to do. At my institution, I'm very fortunate I have um, neurosurgeons who are pretty willing to listen to reason. I recognize there are many people who work <laughs> in institutions where neurosurgeons are not willing to listen to reason. You know, I think that the data is pretty clear in the vast majority of patients. Just because somebody has a little bit of blood in their head does not mean that they cannot get chemical prophylaxis. And there is a large body of literature on this. Um, uh, Obviously, Herb Phelan's done a number, done a ton of work on this, as well as others um, that have really demonstrated that 24 hours is probably perfectly safe in the vast majority of patients.
1: It's a very politically correct way of wording it, listening to research. You know, it's funny
2: because I'm I'm not Hmm? usually politically correct.
1: Uh, Dave, what do you do at your institution? What is what is your policy for uh, chemoprophylaxis?
0: It depends on the neurosurgeon on call, kind mm-hmm. of the day of the week, the phase of the moon,
2: yeah. <laughs> whether it's
0: an odd or an even-numbered day. I mean, it, I honestly, a lot of this stuff, um, you know, when they place a bolt, when they won't, when they want seizure prophylaxis, when they won't, when they allow DVT prophylaxis, I feel like, a lot of times, it, you know, they're doing it just to kind of prove to me that I'm not a neurosurgeon because I try to guess and I invariably I guess wrong. So I, I don't have a, you know, a, a standard policy that we do. I mean, we do have a, a protocol that um, if we have a, a a stable head CT, then they're usually comfortable starting DBT, prophylaxis at 72 hours was where we compromised and, and at least got them to give us a number. And I think that was, uh, was progress, but uh but even then, it's sort of variable on on what they're comfortable with. So, and I, and I guess I respect that. I mean, it's it's kind of the courage of the non-combatant, right? I mean, they have to deal with the consequence of an extended extended bleed. They don't have to deal with the consequence of a DBT. So, it's it's there's a there's a lot of negotiation.
1: Negotiation, another politically correct way of saying it.
2: Yeah, uh, I mean, it's a you know idea. I'm sorry, Carrie. I was just going to say I do think that that having, um, if you can get everybody in, uh, what I suggest to people when they ask me this question is if you can get everybody in a room or or on an email chain, and come up with at least at least a um, some semblance of a, and I hate using the word protocol because protocol implies that if you if you are not following it, you are violating your institutional standard, which has medical legal implications. But at least a guideline. And that way everybody's speaking the same language. And there may be exceptions to when you you volitionally say, I'm not gonna follow this guideline. Um, but at least that's helpful for in the vast majority of institutions in that way if you're not reinventing the wheel with every patient. Um mm-hmm. it, it just tends to be helpful, but it can, it can, don't get me wrong, I, I'm not saying by any means that it is um it is easy to do, uh, in many situations. That's, that's what we do at our
1: institution, our, our guideline, and like you said, we don't call it protocol. The guideline is at 48 hours, we all agree, that's when the conversation is going to start. And if the if neurosurgeon feels at 48 hours that we cannot use chemoprophylaxis, we ask them to document a why yep. in their note. What is the concern we worried about? And then, then this helps them feel a little bit more comfortable as well, because if everyone in the building is kind of doing the same thing for the same type of injury, it's a little, like, legal protective and, and gives a little bit of comfort that if there is a bad outcome, because no one's saying 48 hours is no bad outcome possible. But if there was, at least we're all doing the same thing. And likewise, if we didn't give it and there was a bad outcome, it kind of helps protect everybody on the same page.
2: I think that's incredibly smart, Carrie. I think it's a really really nice way of doing it. Is that Because, you know, if you, if you think about it, if you, as long as you're documenting your rationale, I mean, one of the things I always say is there's no such thing as a contraindication. There's just a really bad risk-benefit ratio. And so, one of the things, if you document your thought process about why I think chemoprophylaxis, you know, giving it outweighs the detriment, and you document that, I think that not only is helpful for just pure communication among the among the healthcare team, but it also, for, like you said, from a medical legal point of view, as long as your rationale is documented, people are, are welcome to disagree with it. But it is, it's your rationale, and as long as it's in there, and everybody everybody recognizes that that sort of thought process, so I think it's a really smart way of doing it.
1: Thanks. Um, you now, Dave actually mentioned something about a stable uh, head CT, and that gets me to my next question. Um, at your institutions, do you do you routinely repeat head CTs on everybody? Are you selective about it? Um, how do you manage uh, repeat head CTs?
2: Yeah, our, our per- current protocol, it, which drives me crazy, um, is that everybody who has blood in their head gets a, re- gets a repeat CT scan at 6 and 24 hours. Um, so two that repeat means- CTs. Repeat, two repeat CTs. That being said, we are recognizing that those patients who have relatively, what you might say, minimal brain injuries, right, and I think uh, Bilal Joseph and the big guidelines have done a really nice job of highlighting who these patients may be, um, really probably don't need repeat imaging. And we've actually gone away from that, and we're now kind of, you know, the patient who comes in and is GCS of 15 and has a small subdural or has a whiff, whiff subarachnoid, we, we typically will repeat one CT at six hours and then send them home. That being said, uh, I freely admit that my own institution where we try to be relatively progressive and relatively uh, evidence-based, we still are doing way too many CT scans on these patients. Um, There are certainly certain lesions that are at higher risk, and those lesions are very important for the general surgeon to be aware of. Number one, patients who have epidural hematomas. um, Earlier uh, repeat imaging for those patients can be very helpful. They tend to, as we all know, they tend to There typically are arterial bleeds, and so we tend to repeat imaging on those patients at shorter intervals, typically four hours, depending on how the patient's doing. The other thing is that you always want to be careful of anything in the posterior fossa. Posterior fossa injuries, which are relatively rare, but when they occur, those lesions, remember how a patient who has a, a frontal contusion who worsens, who has an increase in their bleed, will, deprel, will develop worsening or will develop a decreasing level of consciousness. The patient with a posterior fossa lesion that worsens develops apnea and death as their manifestation. The other thing I have to keep in mind is just because we say we're gonna repeat imaging at whatever interval your institution decides on, the most important thing is the clinical exam. And so if the patient has a, a clinical change those are patients that should be re-imaged or intervened on. And so we get so focused on this time frame, at least at my institution we do, that we forget, oh, yeah, the patient was a GCS of 15, now they're a GCS of 6, but it's not six hours yet, so we're not going to re-image them. I'm obviously being somewhat facetious by saying that, but but I think you want to keep in mind that it's a clinical exam, which is by far much more important in these patients than the pure radiographic findings. How about you, Dave?
1: What do you all do?
0: Um, that's another area where we're we're sort of working on it um, and that's one of the questions I have for you, Deb is do you get neurosurgery involved in every single head bleed? because that's where I find it most kind of challenging is what is big enough to justify what isn't, and then most importantly, like what do you do for follow up do we want to do is there is there room in the trauma clinic to be doing sort of follow up on these minuscule or, you know, yep. what I would
2: consider sort of trivial. Yeah, tri- Yeah, I mean, almost almost functionally incidental findings these days, right? I mean, with with that's imaging right. the crap out of everybody. Yeah, it's, right. it's a great question. Um, we at our institution do get neurosurgery involved in all of these uh, for two reasons. One is we have, we have a dedicated trauma neurosurgeon who is in-house 24-7 who's just assigned to the trauma center. So our availability, our access to neurosurgical, uh, and these are residents obviously, but our access to neurosurgery is, is uh, super easy for us, but recognizing that that is not what is available in most places. Um, I think that, again, Bilal Joseph's work that he's doing on these big guidelines actually hopefully will really help to clarify some of that for us. Um, certainly the patients, and for those of you who aren't familiar with it, I apologize, I don't have the reference at my fingertips, but maybe, Carrie, you could somehow stick that in here somewhere. Um, so that it's sure. available to people that Dahlahl's done some single center validation. There's been some external validation. He is now in the process of doing a multi center observational study to look at patients and they have criteria based what they call big one, big two, and big three. That the big one patients, for example, these are patients who, David, used you said, these trivial brain injuries, based on some anatomic criteria that are that are um, are taken off the CT scan, basically do just fine without a neurosurgeon seeing them, without a repeat imaging, and and with relatively minimal observation. The larger the lesions, the more scary the lesions look. Um, and again, they have some nice validated criteria that they're using for those guidelines. I think you want to be very careful in patients who are old, uh, who who have some baseline cognitive dysfunction. These patients that we're talking about are patients who you can clinically examine because they have a normal, they have normal mentation. And I think you want to be very careful about patients who are on anticoagulation, um, because those are patients who don't behave like a 20 year old with this tiny subdural those are patients who behave differently but i think once we get the validation of those criteria that'll be incredibly helpful and i think you know in addition to places like who may not have a neurosurgeon readily available what do we do about transferring these patients right we get a ton of these patients transferred in from community hospitals or from non trauma or non trauma centers and they sit here for Six, ten, twelve hours, and then we send them home. Is that really a good utilization of resources? Or can those patients, who are exceptionally low risk of their lesions progressing to anything requiring an intervention, can they be safely observed at a non-trauma center where there isn't a neurosurgeon available? And I think the answer is going to be yes, but I do think we need some data about the safety of that. A follow-up is kind of an interesting one. Um, you know, I think the vast majority of patients who have Just because you have some blood in your head doesn't mean you necessarily need to be seen at exactly two weeks by a neurosurgeon. That being said, I think we underestimate the long-term cognitive sequelae that many of these patients have, and I do think that getting them back in to be seen by somebody who understands the disease of brain injury is very important. Many of these patients, and um, uh, Ben Zarzar has some nice data on this, um, but many of these patients will have will be manifesting really not insignificant cognitive sequelae of their brain injury at two weeks, at four weeks. Most of the patients get better in relatively short order, but there's some there's a subset of patients who really have persistent symptomatology. And getting those patients access to services, whether it be occupational therapy, speech therapy, cognitive therapy, return to you know, return to driving um, programs can be very helpful. So I am a huge proponent of these patients being seen back to make sure we're not missing those patients who are, in fact, having difficulty with their injury because it tends to go relatively unrecognized.
0: Let me just jump in here. I'll tell you, one of the things that we have implemented that I think have been very helpful is um, we don't have 24-7 in-house neurosurgeons. Um, They're obviously very responsive to call and stuff like that. But... um, we have a group of very experienced uh, advanced practice providers. We Mm -hmm. call them APCs here. And so we have created a pathway where, um, you know, maybe um, we just get the AP to to review the film and kind of, you know, provide backup if the clinician is unsure. But then we have an APC run follow-up clinic for these, for exactly these kinds of patients that maybe have a a small amount of blood, but you still want them to be seen by somebody to do that kind of screening like you were mentioning, Devin. I I have found it to be very helpful, and I think the APCs also um, enjoy having that level of autonomy that is within the full scope of their license, and so I I think that's something that that, that can be beneficial in other places too.
2: Yeah, I think that's a a, a fantastic use of of that that type of, of practitioner.
1: I wanted to transition a bit into, we've left the trauma bay, and now we're in the ICU, and kind of hit on some of the ICU topics, Um, excuse me. The first uh, being is uh, targeted temperature management, how cold should we make the patient, how hot is bad, Uh, and what your thoughts are on that, Deb?
2: Yeah, so. The issue with what the buzzword, as, you, as Carrie obviously correctly said, is, is targeted temperature management, right? We recognize that therapeutic hypothermia, um, does not work. It's, it's, it's super disappointing. Um, the neuro, the neurotrauma geeks among us will, will be very, very, we're very sad by the fact that it doesn't work. Um, it seems like such a good idea. Uh, that being said, it doesn't. Um, there are now uh, obviously uses of therapeutic hypothermia and prophylactically, meaning somebody has bad brain injury, so we're going to cool them. Clearly, has, does not work. And then those patients in whom uh, therapeutic hypothermia is used as part of their ICP management strategy, those patients, number of studies now, um, including a large, the Eurotherm trial, which um, was terminated um, an interim analysis because of worse cognitive outcomes in patients who had who were treated with therapeutic hypothermia. So. That has gone by the wayside. It is effective at lowering intracranial pressure. That is true. Um, but as far as outcome, uh, we have not demonstrated benefit in in the large randomized high-quality tr- trials that have been done. That being said, targeted temperature management, meaning prevention of fever, we still feel like that's a good idea, and that's based on some uh, there a large body of observational literature at this point. What the right temperature is, is a really good question. I'm not sure I know, I I know I don't know the answer to that. Um, Normothermia is what we target. um, Prevention of hyperthermia, prevention of fever. And we typically here we say, okay, if you have a severe traumatic brain injury, um, they're kind of one of two strategies. We can wait until you start spiking and then decide we're going to put you on a targeted temperature management protocol, or we can empirically say, wow, you have a bad head injury, you're in our ICU, you're we're you got an ICP monitor in, we're worried about you, we are going to empirically put a device on you of some sort, and you could certainly argue intravascular device, external cooling, et cetera. Um, We're going to put a device on you, and we are going to leave your temperature at 37 degrees or 37.5 degrees and not let it go above that. Two different strategies. Um, I know a number of places that use one or the other. Um, We tend to do a little bit of an unfortunate hybrid here of that, depending on how bad the patient's injury is. But, I, but prevention of fever um, is clearly uh, an important part of the strategy of management of a patient with traumatic brain injury. I will say one caveat about that, um, that we started having issues with our infectious disease um, uh, colleagues, that they were, you know, we use fever as a sign and symptom of potential infection. Obviously, these patients mm-hmm. are exceptionally high risk of infection. So one of the things that we have started paying attention to and that we actually now ask our nurses to document, and I don't know why it took us so long to figure this out, is actually the bath temperature of whatever device you're using. If the bath temperature is very low, that means the machine is obviously working hard to maintain a patient normothermic, and then we use that as our trigger for our fever evaluation or for an infection, our infection protocol. Um, and so that's just a little caveat to um, to managing these patients is that you don't want to wait till their white count hits 30 um, to find out they have a UTI, or they have pneumonia, or whatever else, um, whatever other infection you'd be worried about.
1: That is such a straightforward idea. I wouldn't even know where to look for the bath temperature, but It's there. I, I promise you it's that there, out. yeah. Sure. <laughs> um And then uh, you also mentioned uh, ICP monitoring. Um, how do you decide who needs it? Do we still use the old adage, if she says less than eight, they get it?
2: <laughs> You're getting a huge groan <laughs> from me about this. So those of you That's who haven't heard my soapbox about the current Brain Trauma Foundation guidelines. Um, the current Brain Trauma Foundation guidelines basically made no new recommendations with respect to who should have an ICP monitor or who shouldn't. They chose to reiterate the old recommendations from the third edition that basically states, as we're all familiar with, anybody who has a GCS of eight or less, with blood in their head should have an ICP monitor, and then those completely nebulous um, criteria of a negative head CT but age over 40 hypotension or lateralizing signs, which is completely nebulous and based on some super old, non-high quality uh, level studies um, that I won't go into. We'll just talk about the pure GCS criteria. you got blood in your head, your GCS is less than, is eight or less, you should get an ICP monitor. Well, I think we're all recognizing, obviously, the best TRIP trial demonstrated to us that if you take a bunch of patients, you monitor their ICP versus you take a bunch of patients with equivalent injuries and you don't monitor their ICP, but you just follow them based on CT and clinical exam, there is no difference in outcome. That study was obviously done outside the United States. It was done in Latin America, very different environment, very di- different pre-hospital services, very different post-acute services. so. Generalizing that to a population of patients with severe traumatic brain injury in the United States or in other developed or highly sophisticated systems is um, there's a lot of concerns about making a direct um, comparison. That being said, there is no high quality data out there that says, or I should, there is no level 1a data out there that says that an ICP monitor changes a patient's outcome. The analogy I will use for that is, okay, there's no data that says do you need to put in, do you need to measure blood pressure? Well, it sounds like a ridiculous thing to say, but there are other ways to tell whether somebody is hypoperfused, right? You can feel their fetal pulse. You can look at what their skin color looks like. You can – right, there are lots of ways to see, see that a patient is in shock or is hypotensive, but we choose to measure the blood pressure. That's the analogy I'll use, if that makes any sense at all, right? So sure. there are other ways to, to say, hey, you may have elevated intracranial pressure, but measuring it is the most direct way. And we do – there is a fair bit of data that says that if you – maintain a lower intracranial pressure, if you do not allow patients to have an elevated intracranial pressure for a prolonged period of time, those patients do better. So it's a little bit of a three-step argument that I'm making here, but most of us um, say that those patients who who are at risk of increased intracranial pressure should probably have their intracranial pressure monitored. The problem is, who are those patients? And a simple GCS less than nine criteria is a little bit ridiculous. Um, There are certainly types of injuries that are more amenable, that are more likely to to be associated with elevated intracranial pressure. Your diffuse injuries, your diffuse axonals, diffuse cerebral contusions, patients who present with compression of their their basal cisterns. And then there are certain injuries where patients aren't at risk of elevated intracranial pressure. Grandma, 82-year-old grandma, who has a small subdural hematoma, even though her level of consciousness may may not be great, is not at risk of elevated, elevated intracranial pressure as a general rule. So that, that kind of one size fits all criteria of a GCS less than nine is, in my opinion, certainly not the best criteria to use. I will tell you practically what we use here. If you have a, if you have a concerning looking head CT and you are not at least briskly localizing in our, in our institution, you will get an ICP monitor. But there are, again, a huge number of caveats associated with that. And survivability also plays in here, too, right? Let's not – there are two ends of the spectrum. There are the patients who are going to do well no matter what you do, and there are patients who are going to do poorly no matter what you do. And it's the ones in between that really have the potential to benefit, in my opinion.
0: Can I ask you to editorialize a little bit? Because it's Me? No. Um,
2: <laughs> <laughs>
0: um, i'm interested in your thoughts on so you know there's been this idea kicking around a little bit that maybe icp is a surrogate measure just like other pressure measurements have been yep. surrogates and they've fallen by the wayside swan gant catheters
2: yeah
0: uh, to name a couple and so i know there's was interest for a while but it seems to kind of have died down about lycox and the yep. microdialysis sampling and all that kind of stuff and then which side do you put it on Yep. Do you think we're we're kind of chasing the exotic bird here? I mean, what what what's you know what what is the best way to really monitor this? And maybe maybe that's why the the data haven't really shaken out is that we don't have the right tool yet. What are your thoughts on that?
2: Yeah, it, it's a great question. Another highly controversial topic in the neurocritical care world. I think there are two issues here. One is I think that if you look at basically every study that's been done on patients with severe traumatic brain injury in an effort to improve outcome. Almost invariably, every single one of them has failed. And if you look at why, there are lots of reasons for that. But my, in my opinion, the main reason for that is that we, we say a traumatic brain injury is a traumatic brain injury is a traumatic brain injury. And if anybody thinks you're going to modify the outcome of somebody who comes in, extends their posturing with a devastating-looking injury, you're wrong. And if anybody thinks, unless you screw them up terribly, you're going to modify the good outcome of a kid who comes in briskly localizing with a, with a small subdural hematoma, you're wrong. So I think the huge problem that we've had is patient selection, right? You want to take a bunch of patients who have a motor score of 4, that you're not sure which way they're going to go, and apply your therapies to those patients. That's a terribly difficult study to do, and that's part of, at least in my opinion, why trial after trial after trial, whether it be a neuroprotective agent or a device or a intervention, why all of those studies have basically failed to demonstrate out, uh, an improvement in outcome. That being said, the ancillary devices, like like Dave, you're asking about the PBR2 monitors, cerebral blood flow monitors, cerebral microdialysis, jug bulb oxygen monitors. Again, all have had similar types of um, studies done. Um, most of the studies have failed to demonstrate a, uh, a high, in a high quality way, benefit with respect to outcome, whether it be mortality or, or cognitive outcome. That being said, probably the one that's been best studied, and um, there's actually the Boost 3, which will be starting up hopefully in the next six months to a year, um, will is a large multi-center trial, randomized trial, that will be looking at PBR2 monitoring the um, in patients with severe traumatic brain injury, as it, and their outcome measures will be cognitive outcome in addition to obviously mortality. So we're we're still trying. I, my, again, my personal opinion is we're designing the studies wrong, Um, that we are taking patients who are going to do well no matter what we do and putting them in there, and we're taking patients who are going to do poorly no matter what they, no matter what we do and putting them in there, and it's diluting out our ability to actually have it demonstrate actual efficacy. We here, um have not, at the Shock Trauma Center, we have gone away, as you said, Dave, from PBR2 monitoring. We will participate in the boost trial um, because I think it's an important study to do, um, and I think the, the results of their phase two trials are relatively compelling. That we may be able to see some signal through the noise, but I still think that we are allowing way too much noise in to be able to demonstrate real benefit. Sugar microdialysis is kind of an interesting one. Um, you know, it's it's. I don't have a ton of experience with it. I freely admit. Um, our our neuro uh, intensive care colleagues at the university that run the non trauma um, non neuro trauma ICU, our neurocritical care unit, use it a lot. They like it in stroke. They like it in aneurysmal subarachnoid hemorrhage. Um, in my opinion, my experience with it has been, wow, those numbers look terrible. The patient's going to do poorly, um, and I think your ability to affect a change in those patients in it, at least in my experience, and I'm I really admitting this is my own personal experience, is relatively limited. But I think, I think, we'll, we'll keep trying. we, we got hey, you got to give neurointensive something to do, right? I mean, we got to do some studies.
0: <laughs> are, they, are they sampling the side of injury or the normal side? Uh, of
2: yeah, another huge, great question. So I think if you think about what you want to be doing, is, which is targeting that penumbra, right? That peri-injury area, that's really where you'd want your monitor to be. But obviously, that's hard to do, especially if a patient has multifocal injury. Most people typically will put it on the normal side, so at least you're looking at what the normal side is doing, which is why probably when you see numbers that look really bad, that means, wow, this patient's going to do really poorly, because globally they are manifesting signs and symptoms of either reduced group of metabolic rate, reduced blood flow, or reduced oxygenation. But the, the, the technology is incredibly limiting with our ability to use this information, as you said, because it's one probe in one spot. You know, if you get some sort of network across the brain, recognizing now more and more that regional blood flow is a big deal, but we tend to set, we tend to treat the brain like it's one box with one inlet and one outlet, and you know, one measure of perfusion, as opposed to this concept of regional blood flow and what the what the blood flow looks like in different brain in different areas and what the cerebral metabolic rate is in different areas. We we don't have the technology to do that yet. There's some interesting stuff being very experimental being done with functional MRI and with, with PET scanning, actually, that can demonstrate some real interesting um, differences in regional blood flow and your ability to actually affect those differences. There's a lot of interest. We're actually going to hopefully get started on a study here soon looking using CT perfusion imaging to be able to detect some of that. Um, I don't know what we're going to do with the information, but at least we'll be able to see it <laughs> potentially. And
0: are you guys using any of these uh, near infrared uh, devices? I don't know if you seen those or Yeah,
2: are we we had some interest in it. We we did some we've done some uh, studies with it. Um, uh, I have not been that impressed that we're able to um, to use it to uh, to any patient's benefit at this point. I think the technology is kind of interesting. I think um, its ability to tell you you know, kind of what's going on in the brain is kind of interesting. I, I, I'm i not sure what to do with the numbers that sits back out yet. Uh, we've done some work with respect to detection of post cerebral vasospasm in years, um, which demonstrated some interesting results, but not enough to make me change my practice at this point.
1: All right. Next topic I want to touch on is uh, nutrition. Uh, when kind of a broad topic, but when do you start your nutrition? Assuming these are, we'll just talk about primary uh, brain injured patients, no uh, abdominal injuries. When do you start? Um, do you place a peg once you get to the point of feeding tube? Do you do a J tube? Do you do GJs? And then uh, kind of when is your timing of when you say we need to just accept this, move on, and just get a feeding tube placed?
2: Multiple. And I ask this question because I do
1: remember <laughs> I remember coming in one morning. At 8 a.m., and the patient I think had been injured at like 5 a.m., and I walked on the unit. They already had their feeding tube in, and the tube keys already started. Yep,
2: and I was that's like, wow. my unit. And I was like, yep, that's your unit. Yeah, so this is why bring out, bring yeah. the I bring this up. Yeah, so you have to understand, I'm very food motivated myself. So I firmly believe that everybody should eat. Um, <laughs> so I, I am a, a huge fan of early enteral nutrition um, in patients who have in, in injured patients overall and critically ill patients overall, recognizing that what you know. Do you need goal nutrition? Is is um, is limited calories with uh, I, with goal protein? The right way to do it is um, something better than nothing. Is you know there's a lot of controversy about that, and I don't think that and I'm certainly not going to sell that here. Um, I think we all recognize that early enteral nutrition, some component of calories and likely full goal protein is probably, and you guys may have an opinion on this, is probably what the overall critical care literature is is preferring that seems to be where the data is going. Do you guys agree with that statement?
1: Yes. I do. Yeah, we feed, yeah. We feed early. I get stuck in the uh, – some of my colleagues are concerned about the um, – uh, Ilias, a post-traumatic yes. Ilias, and they want to wait and make sure there's no Ilias before we start. So
2: there's yeah. some delay so, sometimes, two or three yeah, days before we leave. I think that's uh, – so, again, I think that if you start early internal nutrition, I think we we de- we have demonstrated there's benefit with respect to infection risk, et cetera. Whether you need goal calorie or not, I'm not going to get into Matt Martin, would get up and jump down my throat if I did. Um, (laughs) That being said, so some nutrition, okay, we all agree early enteral nutrition of some degree is important. I think, and there is some data on this, that actually early enteral enteral nutrition decreases the rate of ileus, and so Mm -hmm. therefore if you can provide early enteral nutrition, you may actually prevent some patients from developing an ileus. That being said, a patient, once they develop an ileus, that there is some data that says that providing them some enterocyte supplementation, I was calling them enterocyte snacks the other day, Um, (laughs) that it may potentially be beneficial even if you do have an ileus. Now, that all being said, you also don't want to put a patient at risk of aspiration. So we tend to, in my unit, and this is specifically patients with brain injury, is we tend to place a feeding tube, a nasal enteric feeding tube, Early on, as Carrie said, when the patient first gets there, it allows us to give meds, number one, it also the earlier you get it in, before they get all swollen, and before you start having issues with their ICPs, we tend to think that's better. Put the tube in. We shoot for post-pyloric just because we do recognize that X percent of these patients will have a gastric ileus and will tolerate post-pyloric feeding better. If we don't get in the post-pyloric tube and it winds up in the stomach, that's fine. We go ahead and feed the stomach. If we then find that they're not tolerating gastric feeding, we will then convert them to a nasoenteric post-pyloric tube. That tends to be what we do. I will tell you we're also re- completely reevaluating that. The more we think about it, is feeding somebody a small bowel really a good idea? And this concept of sleep-wake cycles and, and you know a variety of different um Things that may be uh, related to how we feed people. I think it's poorly, poorly studied, poorly understood. But perhaps you know. We eat three meals a day. Well, I eat five, but most people eat three <laughs> meals a day, um, and there's a reason for that. And most people don't eat while they're sleeping, and there's probably a reason for that as well. Um, and so we are now actually reevaluating how we feed patients in our IC, in our critically ill patients overall about whether or not we should be feeding people's stomachs, not their small bowel, and whether we should be feeding them not just continuously but potentially bolus feeding. That all being said, that's kind of a newer concept that has permeated my brain and my partner's brains recently. I don't know what you guys do if you guys are bolus gastric feeders, which we would think would be more physiologic as opposed to continuous small bowel feeders. Um, I don't know that we know one's better than the other. But that being said, the TBI patient clearly is at risk of gastric ileus. That is well documented. And clearly, if you're feeding the stomach and they are not – uh, and they do have a gastric ileus, you are increasing their risk of aspiration if they are not tolerating those feedings. That was a very, very, very long answer to your very simple question. <laughs> I don't think it's simple at all. Uh, uh, all
1: the points that you brought up, um, I think we wrestle with uh, on a daily basis. Dave, what do you guys uh, do at your practice? Are you early feeders?
0: We are uh, typically early feeders. We, um, Our nurses have a pretty established uh, practice of placing the Nasoenteric feeding tubes using that forget uh, the name of the device, and so we do uh, continuous feeds pretty routinely. And, and I think a lot of that is I, I've, I've been okay with, even though I, I I get the concept of the bolus feeds and stuff. I, I, what I end up fighting a lot is the gastric residual demon, it yeah is, I think uncourageable from any ICU that I've ever worked in. It is impossible to to, to fight that battle. So it I, really I it, why it.
2: is that they they are just know. married to it. Yep. I think
0: it's it, because it's measurable and because it's a thing, it it, it, it becomes a thing. So.
2: Yep.
1: It makes common kind of sense, right? If I'm feeding somebody and then I get a residual and it's some number that is quote high, and I don't know what that number is five hundred, six hundred, maybe it's because they have an ileus and it's not progressing through. So I can see the kind of you know thought process behind it. I bang my head against the wall when we set these limits at like well if it's one fifty or two hundred just stop.
2: Well, I yeah. think, but, you know, the problem with that, Carrie, is there is data that says that checking check gastric residuals does not decrease your rate of aspiration.
0: Mm-hmm. And, that's, mm-hmm. and
2: that's really – but but, I, but Dave's exactly right. My nurse, I can't stop my nurses from doing it. Nope. I mean, but, but it does make sense, right? I mean, you would think that if somebody has 500 cc's of tube feeds in their stomach and you're only feeding them at 100 cc's an hour and it's only been four hours, that's probably not a good idea. Right. Yep. But then what?
1: <laughs> so you had mentioned a, a great word earlier. You said survivability. And I uh, was wondering about survivability and trachs. So if you have a patient, you see the injury early, and you know they're, they're probably not going to be extubated breathing on their own within, say, a week, week and a half. Um, how early do you trach them? How, how, do you, how long do you wait maybe to see if the family actually wants to persist in care? How, yeah. how do you handle that with those families?
2: Yeah, I, the, it, I, the short answer is I, I think you have to do this on a case-by-case basis. I think that there is... Um a fair body of literature, as well as my personal um, opinion, is that if somebody is going to get a tracheostomy in the setting of a tr- severe traumatic brain injury, earlier is probably better. There are a couple of reasons for this. Um, number one is many of these patients don't need a ventilator. They need an airway. And so once you provide them a, air, an airway that is not an endotracheal tube, they are liberated from mechanical ventilation. You have eliminated their risk of ventilator-associated pneumonia. Um, as as our friend Dr. Rabinowitz, one of our infectious disease colleagues, always says you can't get a VAP without the V. Um, and <laughs> so I think that there is, is real benefit there. The other thing which I find very interesting is when you have these patients who are very difficult to manage from an ICP point of view and they're getting super agitated and you're on high doses of medications, you know, you're on ridiculous doses of propofol, whatever else you're using, and a huge part of that noxious stimuli in those patients is actually the endotracheal tube, that once you trach them, all of a sudden, their ICPs are no longer difficult to manage. They're like little kittens. They're all happy. And it really, <laughs> I, I, I think that it, so from an ICP management point of view, I think an early tracheostomy can be beneficial. But the point you're bringing up is a super important one. There is something, particularly in patients who don't have significant concomitant injuries, they have not developed pneumonia, they don't have respiratory dysfunction, and you put a trach in them and they pop the trach collar right away. That in a patient in whom a family is even contemplating withdrawal of life-sustaining therapy, I think you have the potential to do some detriment there. And the rationale being, and this is kind of touchy-feely but also just very practical, is that once a patient goes to trach collar, your ability to remove life-sustaining therapy becomes basically nutrition, fluids, and it just has a very different Tone for many patients, families. Then, okay, we're going to extubate them and provide comfort measures only, comfort-focused care. Mm-hmm. So, in those patients who have the really, really bad injuries, unless I get, unless the family is from day one, no matter what happens, we are going to proceed full court press. Uh, you know, I'll take my son anywhere I can get him. I, you know, not even a thought in their minds that they are going to do anything other than absolute maximum therapy. Those patients, I will t- I will typically wait and let the family lead us with respect to if they're, if, particularly if the patient is older or has significant medical comorbidities or really has an injury that is so devastating that we, we don't feel like we're going to be able to provide any kind of prognostication that is not devastating. I typically will hold off on those patients. How long do you hold off for? Ech, I don't know. Um, but... I think that, you know, and at some point you do reach a, a point of diminishing returns where you know that if you were going to be proceeding with care, you were doing the patient a disservice by keeping them a tracheal tube in as opposed to a tracheostomy. Um, at some point, you do need to kind of make a decision and, you know, kind of poop or get off the pot. Okay, get out of it. No, I think it's touchy feely, but it's what we
1: do. I mean, it's part yep. of the. Uh... I see it, been well enough to to manage it, um, okay so for propriety, so th- those are all the kind of topics and questions I have that are on the practical management of um, uh, chronic brain injuries now. Um, I want just your thoughts and, and take as much time at little times you want just to talk about some of the future of research like. I don't know, should we be trying to just cool somebody's head? You know, that was something I came across last night. Or what are some of the cool things that are out there that that you'd like to see done in research?
2: (laughs) So, unfortunately, um, not nearly as much as we would like. I think some of the neuroprotective agents, um, as I stated before, right, every single study that's been done uh, for a neuroprotective agent has failed miserably. Um, That being said, there is some interesting stuff going on. Um, particularly with respect to Gliberide. Um I, I I will, in the interest of full disclosure, it, that is a uh, work that has come out of my institution. I have no financial interest in the company, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. No, no financial disclosure. But it is, I am very compelled by that work that is done by some colleagues of mine here at the University of Maryland. But really interesting um, data with respect to reduction of the cerebral edema um, in both in both stroke and traumatic brain injury, both animal models and some human data. Um, Dr. Samard, uh, uh, who is one of my neurosurgical colleagues here, has done that landmark work, and actually um, they, he is in discussions right now about doing a large multi-center trial, um, looking at that as a neuroprotective agent for prevention of secondary injury. Um, other than that, there's a lot of stuff that's in preclinical um, that. I have fear that, like every other um drug that comes up a drug or, ther- or therapeutic will go by the wayside because we will design the study poorly um I've been very fortunate to work with dr Samard um and give him my opinion about how to design a trial that that has the potential of, of demonstrating benefit. Again, picking those patients who are likely to benefit from an intervention or have the potential to benefit from an intervention. Again, I can't say it enough. You take a bunch of patients who have a devastating injury who are going to do poorly no matter what you do, they're going to do poorly. Take a bunch of patients who are going to do well no matter what you do, they're going to do well no matter what you do. And so I think you want to make sure that the study design is really is really clear is In- cerebral cooling is kind of an interesting one. Um, again, I think we should be careful about how we design the studies that look at that. I think the devices aren't quite there yet. They probably will get there soon, um, and it's kind of – it will be very interesting to see what the data looks like coming out of that. Um, I think that uh, one of the things that is, um, is a real hot-button topic uh, issue right now is what are the outcome measures we should be looking at um the NIH has a lot of interest in this currently the accepted outcome measure of the extended glasgow outcome scale we all are recognizing is is certainly not by any means a great metric um to look at and so a lot of interest in what validated outcome measures we can use that are doable right you don't want to make it so arduous that you can't do a study cuz you can't you know it takes 5 hours to do some sort of battery of neurocognitive testing but um so you want to make sure you're looking at the right outcome measures you want to make sure you are not using mortality as your endpoint, um, or as your only endpoint, I should say. But it'll, you know, I, I think we'll continue to do what we're doing now. But until we recognize that we have to design studies uh, in a better way, um, I think we're going to continue to see the same thing over and over and over again.
1: And I think you make a really good point. So well, thank you so so much for spending this much time uh, going over neurotrauma. I think it's going to be it's uh, certainly incredible, incredible for me. I like going back and listening to these kind of uh, trauma cast and I hope that our, our listeners get some uh,
2: benefit too so we really appreciate it and I apologize if I said anything that offended anybody <laughs> my own opinion big 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 huge disclaimer much of what I've just said is is my own opinion and it's just it is the opinions expressed here are mine alone and not those of my <laughs> x y and z so uh Carrie thank but, you very much though I really this has been fun I,
0: I could listen to you all day Deb it's a pleasure
2: You're very sweet, Dave. Thank you, guys. I appreciate the opportunity. And that wraps up another
1: edition of TraumaCast, brought to you by the EAST Online Education Committee of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma. You can check out all the great educational and career development resources available on the EAST website at www.east.org. And make sure you subscribe to the TraumaCast series so you don't miss any of our exciting upcoming programs and interviews. So if you're searching for cutting-edge science and research, professional education, network and building relationships, and career development, remember that all you need to do is look to the east.